Anyone have a guess what that might stand for? I only learned it this week. It's an American medical uh, shorthand. FTT? Yes. You are a genius. Failure to thrive. Right? Heard that term? So you're sometimes of, of little babies who, for whatever reason, they're not putting on weight or uh, they're not reading enough physics textbooks before they're six months old and they're, they're failing to thrive. I first heard it maybe in the big, about 2000 and something, when Romania under Ceausescu, when that government finally fell, which was such a wonderful thing that it went out of existence. And then people began to discover some of the things that were happening under that regime, and they discovered that there were children, orphanages, which held 150,000 little children, like baby-type children. And the doctors, who I read some of their stuff from Boston Children's Hospital, which is a pretty impressive hospital in the States, uh, they said that the, the unnerving thing when you came into this room, like bigger than this church, just full of hundreds of cots, full of little babies, they said was the silence. Because you wouldn't expect in a room that big of babies that they would all be said. They didn't cry, the kids. They had sadly learnt that it was a waste of time. Um, the nurses or, or the people who cared for them had done all that they could, but they were horribly under-resourced. They'd change their nappies, they'd give them bottles and uh, kept the rooms at, at appropriate temperature for children. But 150,000 were basically just locked in these rooms and cots. And some of them were. They picked them. They were, they were literally tied to them. And that's when I heard this phrase, failure to thrive, because they said at one level they had everything that they needed, just physically. Their nappies were changed, food was given, temperature was okay. But the, the ongoing damage. In fact, they checked with, I think it was MRIs or whatever is the appropriate thing. They discovered that these kids had smaller brains than an ordinary child in an ordinary home, even in Romania. Uh, and I, one of them, either the grey or the white parts, could grow back if they began to get cared for and loved. But the damage was substantial uh, emotionally. Some of them could, rec they said a number of the kids who were under two, if they were put into into good hands, could recover mostly. But there was general agreement that these children would never be the kids that they could have been. They had that failure to thrive and it had nothing to do with the nourishment quality of the milk they were given. It was simply that they weren't hugged. Nobody looked at them and goo goo guard and spoke into their faces. Uh, they were just never embraced. The poor people there, and they were mostly ladies looking up, they just couldn't, they just didn't have the time to do that. And they'd failed to thrive. Something essential to being human was missing. Now, I'm sure in a room this big with these people, many of you have had all sorts of terrible moments in your childhood, perhaps in your adulthood. But things happen to us that make it impossible for us to become the people that we really could have been, the humans in all of the glory that God had in mind. And many of you know, and some of you work with people who obviously something has gone terribly wrong that brings them to where they are, where you seek to help them. It's interesting to think what might have happened to Adam, just running from the Genesis 2 story where the man is made first and the woman is made second, if he'd gone into the garden, beautiful, beautiful surroundings, 
no pollution, a really good job that he's been tailor-made for, a perfect friendship with God, his creator, um, all sorts of friendships with animals and other things, and, but if he just was on his own for 10, 50, 100, however. Can you become a human without interactions with other humans? I mean, we can't do the experiment, and we shouldn't. But if you take a baby, if it could just live on its own and just have no interaction, would, well, of course it's a human. You check the DNA. But in all that we normally think of what it means to be human, would the person be so damaged, so starved, that it would you know, not know how to do all the things humans do? Apparently within less than an hour, some doctors do this thing where they stick their tongue out of babies and the baby copies it. I haven't tested that myself. But they, they just, they, they, throw, they live interaction. So we're looking at what does it mean, you know, how, how, how important is it that you have communion, relationship, love with other people in being human? Can you do this being human as a rugged individual? Right? It is true, I think, when, when various scholars who know a lot more than I do say that we are the most rabidly individualistic culture ever in human history. There have been other cultures that were pretty individualistic, ancient Greece and other things like that, but they think we are by far the most individualistic. And what we think is normal, in fact is healthy, is arguably quite unhealthy. Fish don't notice apparently the flavour of the water that they're in. Uh, so, well, let's pray that we would hear what God has to say from his word about how, at what level is it significant for you to be involved in relationships for your benefit and for you to be involved in relationships for the benefit of others. Father, you are the one who imagined us into existence. You are the great architect. And we are very much more broken and mass-produced than we could even imagine. And we pray now as we look together at your word that we would remember things that we've known and see a fresh weight in some of them, that we would go from here more fully, thoroughly, wonderfully human uh, and do good throughout the week. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Um, there's at least three different bands of sung songs with these words, um, me, myself and I. I remember a sort of a punk band that I, I can't remember who it was. They had a song, Do You Trust Who I Trust, Me, Myself and I. And then of another class and culture, Beyonce's got a song, which I listened to last night. That will do me, I think. Um, on Me, Myself and I. But look, it's a, it's a sad song because she's, so, she's been so damaged or hurt by some bloke that she said, that's it. That's it, baby. It's just me, myself and I. And another song, more recent song, um, uh, with the same phrase, me, myself, and I, and it's a song of defiance. I do this on my own. Uh, and then they say things, yeah, all I need is the music. Well, you don't get music on your own, you clown. But, but we just, we forget the dependence. But there's an, they're the extreme statements. And when people, there's a whole lot of things that get said. And they, yeah, well, there's a truth in it. So one of the statements that, you know, is becoming more and more common is, you do you. Now that, that's not, you know, there's a place for that. But the way it functions in our culture, which, which um, this particular form of uh, 
expressive individualism that uh, a couple of writers of density, uh, well, not density of head, but density of writing, for about 15 years have been drawing our attention to. Uh, and it, it impacts both kids and us. Um, and th they just notice the, 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 the only way to discover what is true is the journey in. Of course, you do need to have a look at yourself. And whatever I discover in here, that is the determinative reality, even though we know <laughs> people, as they move and grow through life, will often find something quite different on the inside. Uh, all sorts of things that we were told were fixed, we're discovering are not fixed uh, as people move on through life, not just through adolescence. But we're told that you have, you do you. It, it can mean just leave me alone. Or it can just be whatever you feel you need to do, you need to do it. And the, the evil people in our culture, and they are evil, are people who say, no, <laughs> there are things outside of you that you need to take into account. Now, when the Bible introduces us to humans, uh, you know, it, it tells us the, the account from two different angles. In chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. It's beautiful. It's a bit like God the potter. He shapes and then breathes life, and the man uh, comes to life. He goes to work in the beautiful garden, and then there's this, there's this shocking statement. Now, I know because you know this is shocking, many of you are over the shock, but it is shocking we've had in chapter 1 what is actually shocking itself compared to the literature of the time, that God keeps saying when he makes something, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it's very good. And suddenly in chapter 2, where there's no sin at all in the world, the Lord God said, something is not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And as you know, the word helper does not mean subordinate to. God is our helper. You are never, ever, ever God's helper. Right? So being someone's helper, only our sinful culture says, oh dear, call someone a helper? That's appalling. No, no, no. It's just saying this person has weakness and this person comes alongside as God does to us. He is, he is the person most often called helper. And what God is saying, what the Bible is saying here is that the human being, perfect, no sickness, no damage from parents. Uh, perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationship with the environment. The perfect job. He's not well. He's not complete. Uh, there's something not good. And you see, I see statements and I get it. Where people say, God is enough for me. And I, and I get that. Um, and the, there's, at least in Psalm 73, it speaks like that. But I want to say to you, the Bible says that's just really not true. God is not enough. God on his own was not enough. And I know that's almost blasphemous to say that. If, if God puts you in a position where God is all you've got, he will make it enough for you. But the ordinary situation is God is not enough. I feel a bit naughty saying that. But that does seem to be what the scriptures are saying. It was not good. It, it is a deep, essential part of being human that we have these others. Now, for Adam and Eve, it's marriage, but I, I think the Bible is quite clear. It's other sorts of friendships for some people. Jesus was a rather together person. He was not married. Uh, lived and died unmarried, lived and died a virgin. The idea that I, I hear this, well, you can only be a full human being if you're having sex. Rubbish, right? 
Otherwise, you've got some of the best people in human history, you know, were walking pathetic defamations of humans. It's just ridiculous. But that's the normal, right? That, that we get, we find our close friendship in marriage. But humans need friendship. And, and if you're in one of the life groups, you would have gone through quite a few verses about friendship. It's an essential part of being alive. So the first thing is when it comes to creation, the C of the CBR, God has made us needing people. We don't just need people now because of our sinfulness, because we, we've lost the closeness with God. No, no, no. That's not what the Bible says at all. So Ecclesiastes, I nearly read this. We had a wedding here on um, uh, Friday morning, and I nearly read this and made it the point of the sermon and then went for that, because I just thought it might make people sad. And you don't want anyone being sad in a wedding if you can avoid it. Um, but it's the very famous part that was read for us in the first Bible reading in Ecclesiastes, which is a, a wonderfully weird book that, God willing, we're going to be uh, spending some time in uh, next year, which will be fun. Um, he talks in verse 8, there was a man who was all alone, but very wealthy. Then in verse 9, the famous verses, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, there are a number of ways in which the wise man who writes this Solomon says that partnerships, the two are better than one. Um, so you can, you can often produce more. Two working together on something can often produce more than they would if they were just working separately. Of course, sometimes you might be partnered, as often happens in school and university things. When you're given a team thing, it's a complete pain in the neck. Right? Uh, these are proverbial statements, so they're generally true. If either of them falls down, they can help each other. Pity help the one who falls and has no one to help them. And you remember that sh shattering story of Aaron Ralston. That's right. I don't have a tattoo, I just wrote it there. Aaron Ralston, a really athletic, very confident young man, 2003, was bouldering and canyoning um, on his own. My mummy, who was a tawny owl, so she must be taken seriously, she said, you never go in the bush on your own, much as it's fun. Otherwise, you can have an Aaron Ralston story. He's clambering along. He bounces from one rock to the other and something happens and another rock from above falls and crushes his arm and he cannot get it out. He's got a penknife and he uses his penknife for a while to try and cut the rock away, but he can't do it. And you know that I won't, I won't put pictures up. Um, in the end, he realises he either stays here and dies because nobody even knew where he was. He was silly. He was a very arrogant young man, as he says. He hadn't even told anyone where he was going, so he was um, away for days, uh, slowly dying. And then finally he worked out he had to cut his arm off. But the knife wasn't sharp enough to cut through the bone, um, so he had, he, had, he had to break it by doing something on the rock. It's gruesome, isn't it? Um, but if he had a friend with him, he would have been fine. He would have had a sore arm. But because he was on his own, that's what the Bible saying. You know, if you fall down, it, it is so important to have someone who knows you and knows where you are. Two lie down together, they can't keep warm. You might know this, but Abraham Lincoln when he was going on various political uh, rounds of speeches, would often sleep in the same bed as, as his uh, assistant, the bloke, 
And apparently, on the history programs, it's quite common. Help just stay warm. We're so sexually obsessed. But, you know, I think it just sounds a bit yucky, but that's okay. But it was very common in many cultures before electric blankets and that. It was very helpful to have a person to stay warm next to, like when you've got hypothermia. One may be overpowered, but you're always better if there's two of you fighting together. So it's just saying it is so much better in so many ways to have someone a partner. Now, my, I was wrecked for quite a while by a guy called Soren Kierkegaard, who's an utterly brilliant Danish Christian existentialist bloke. Sartre and Camus and all these guys acknowledge him as the, the father of their thinking, although they were atheists most of their life, whereas he was always Christian. But he muddled my head, this guy Tony Peacock, who was older than me, was a bit of a hero in our group. When I became a Christian, he was sure it wouldn't last, and he said, read this book, it'll help you get out of it quicker. Um, but Kierkegaard was very big on Abraham was his model. Abraham and God. Isaac, etc. Do it alone. And he said, all these partnerships people form, either in business or in marriage, it's all avoiding being real, stark, Abrahamic me and God. And I, of my friends at school, I was the only one who wanted to get married because in my particular group of friends, I was the only one that had his parents seemed to enjoy their life together and they managed to stay together. Uh, I wasn't looking for a wife at the age of 17 or 18, but you know, I was, I, that was the clear direction. And suddenly I realised, who can argue with Soren Kierkegaard? Uh, I thought, no, oh, I'm going to have to be single. I want to do this Christian thing properly. And Soren has argued it very well. I was a little sad about that. Toughen up. It's the great thing about just read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible. I opened up, it was my Bible, and it was Genesis 2. It's not good for man to be alone. God said it. Marriage, partnership, friendship is not some second-rate form of Christianity. It's essentially the way we're made. To live life in isolation is sad and dangerous and needs to be addressed. Because it's possible to bounce around in crowds but not have anyone who knows us and who we are happy to be known by. So Ecclesiastes is quite clear. So the Bible and creation, we are made for relationship, for love of various types. Secondly, B, standing for broken. We are damaged, you are damaged, so we are both addicted to relationships and also a bit allergic to them. We want to be known, but we're terrified of being known. And if you've been badly hurt by parents or a stranger or someone, you, you will feel this, this longing to, and it's just the damage that can be done to, to so many by so many others is awful. And it's damage that we feel in the horizontal relationship. Genesis 3, where sin enters, the first area it is experienced by Adam and Eve is that their relationship with each other. They hide from each other. They cannot trust each other. They don't trust each other. So that's what the clothing is a picture of. Um, and we do it, don't we? I mean, there's all sorts of things. And it's right sometimes. You shouldn't be completely honest and open with everyone. They'd be mad. But some of us have got areas of our life that people who really probably should know, we're not talking about it. Because if they knew they might have trouble loving me or respecting me. Uh, although often what happens when you share your deepest, darkest secret with someone, they love you the more. Uh, and they're not as shocked as you think they might be. You need to be careful, don't you know? But, this is, but I think there is this natural hiding. And then when God turns up, they hide together away from God. 
the notion that our culture has is that mankind is seeking God rubbish. We had our chance to get our hands on God and we murdered him. And brothers, we need to keep the, the realism of the Bible. Man is wonderful, beautiful, capable of all sorts of good, but at the heart, we are at enmity with God. That's what the scriptures say and it's clearly true. But we are damaged, you're damaged. So it's actually hard to, to draw near in love and to trust because we've been so hurt by people who should have loved and cared for us. And God does engage us in a slow restoration and healing. I think for many of us, it won't be till we finally see him face to face that the healing will be complete. But, but real significant difference can be made if we address these questions with people who can help us in God. And, and sometimes a good psychologist can be a very wise person to talk to. We're damaged and therefore our relationships don't work. My damagedness is different to yours and we'll find, we'll find it hard. Society is a hard and tricky business. Families are, I've shared this um, some time ago, but someone shared it to me, uh, Jim shared it with me and I'd forgotten it. Uh, we were involved in a funeral across, just across the road there in the backyard and a Catholic priest took the service and he, he was, um, he made a, 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 just a comment that I think is so helpful. He said, there are two sorts of families in the world. You heard this? Two sorts of families, dysfunctional families, and very dysfunctional families. And I think that's so helpful because that most, most of us in some areas of our family, it's seriously dysfunctional. And some of us, tragically, have been brought up in very dysfunctional families. But all of us have been hurt by people whose job it was to love us. And we will do it too. I knew them with my three beautiful daughters. I, I, will, I will hurt them. I'm going to try and, I was still trying to hurt them as little as possible. But we will make mistakes. Which is why you come to passage. Someone said to me, you really should speak from Matthew 18 if you're going to do with this relationships and communal. So, so I will. I always do what I'm told. Um, I've got a dear friend that I've learned an enormous amount from called Reuben Rose. I met him when I was at, at a church that was involved at the uni. He was the professor of, professor of vet science, a quite an outstanding guy, and I, he, he took me under his wing in various areas. But um, Reuben... He's gone back to the family farm now, down near Jindabyne. But he, um, he, for a while, he was almost becoming a pastor of a couple of country congregations. And he said, if ever I was asked to go as a pastor of a congregation, he said, do you know what would be the first passages I'd look at with them? I said, what? He said, Matthew 18. I said, why? What, why? He said, because the, the one certainty that's going to happen is, as I seek to serve and lead this congregation, I will hurt people. They will hurt me. Others will hurt each other. We will offend each other. And particularly if the church is trying to just do more than just be sweet and nice. So he said, we need to learn how to disagree as Christians. And I do confess that, you know, for some years, at first I just thought it was weird, but increasingly I thought, yeah, I think there's something in it. Most Christians, even professional Christians, like, you know, ministers and that, do not fight or argue in a Christian way. It's remarkable the number of Christians who would see themselves as pretty serious dudes in this business, who have an argument or misunderstanding and don't come close to dealing with it as Christians. I mean, are we disciples or not? Are we letting him shape our life even when his way of doing it is very different to my family? That's what it is to be Christian. Let me read you what Jesus says. There's a number of passages where Jesus deals with this stuff. But this is the classic, Matthew 18. Many of you will know it. Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins and 
Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, <laughs> which point is a big chance, if they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, said Jesus. Now, he does have other things in this sort of area, but what's really clear, and what Reuben thought was important if he was ever going to lead a church, and he's, he has, he's a member, so it's still relevant, is when someone offends you, you think they've sinned against you in some way, I, it, just, it shocks me the number of Christians who just, whoosh, Jesus may as well have said nothing because they'll deal with conflict the way their families dealt with it or the way they've learned over the years. You have to go and talk to the person. If they won't listen, bring someone else. If that doesn't work, take it to, take it to the church, to the leadership of the church, presumably. But whatever. There's a number of steps. But you'll know this. As, you, know, you may have had friends who've done exactly this in churches. They've been offended by something and they go. And even if the person who's sort of ostensibly the criminal says, hey, can we meet? That's sin. That is to say to Jesus, I will deal with conflict the way I want to. That's not comfortable. But this is what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus knows how we're going to hurt each other. I'm going to hurt you. You're going to hurt me. I'm sure I have hurt some of you, and I'm sorry. And some of you have hurt me. Well, that's a big deal. I can get over that. Right? But what Jesus says, if, it, if, it's a, if it's an issue, go and talk to the person. Don't talk about them. Right? And when someone comes to you and talks to you about something that someone's done, do be a good Christian and say to their friend, have you talked to them about this? And if they haven't, say, can I help you organise that? Um, because one of the ways that we hurt people who, we, who have hurt us is by destroying their reputation, by telling as many as possible. The Bible is so realistic, isn't it? Jesus teaches this. We see the fights that the apostles have between Paul and Barnabas and these things and how it went on and how it happened and how it was resolved later on. When, Jesus, when Paul explains what love is, what's the first thing Jesus, Paul says about love, the all-important thing? Love is patient. Who have you got to be patient with? People who might annoy you. So many of you, I think, I've been a great blessing to you because you've become much more patient since I've been at this church. Send me a bill. No, it's not a bill, a check. Love is patient. The next word, love is kind. Now, that's so important. I want to ask you, are you a person who would be described as kind? Am I? That's... Kindness is not softness. Kindness is how we've got to try and treat each other. It's Christ-like. It's God-like. But we need to be patient. That passage we're going to talk about keeping no record of wrongs. See, one of the things that kills churches and it kills marriages and it kills friendships and it kills all sorts of things is when something happens and we don't forgive, we don't deal with it, and we just chill the relationship out, and then something more happens and something more happens and finally we drift away and there's no friendship at all. That's why forgiveness is so essential to good, loving, long-term friendships and relationships in church or with other humans. The practical nature of the teaching of Jesus is just spectacular. You know that Jesus also says, if you're offering, if you're offering your altar, offering your gift at the altar, 
and you remember that your brother has something against you. So you're, you're chilled. You're okay. You've got no honey. But you know that they're not happy with you. Right? Leave your gift, Jesus says. Go and see if you can be reconciled. Now, sometimes you can't be. Sometimes you try and try and try. And as it says in Romans 12, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So there are various times when I haven't taken the Lord's Supper, both here and other churches, when I know there's... It hasn't been when I've had something against it, but I just know they are unhappy with me. Um, and I think the Bible saying, no, take it, take it seriously. Right? Rifts in the family and the body of Christ need to be dealt with. So the, the expectation is that the unity that we're made for because of our sin will often be broken. And Jesus calls on us to deal in the recovery business, which is what he does. It's the family likeness. Well, they are created, broken, addicted, allergic, renovation, restoration. Well, it seems to be very hard for me anyhow in this series to go past Romans 12. And I want to take you back there for the next part of it. Beautiful verse. It's one sort of verse that some of you have learned off by heart. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect. Well, there's the great hinge that it turns on. With a view of 11 chapters of God's mercy, here's where we move on. The very next topic is humility and then the body. Verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. Each member belongs to all the others. The first thing he says about the transformation that God wants to work in us to make us more like Jesus is about church. I would not have picked that in a million years that the first thing I'd want to talk to someone you know, about their Christian growth, having committed themselves to Christ, I would want to talk about Bible reading or prayer or something like that. But that's not where the apostles go. They go straight to church because we are members of the one body. That is the most distinctive picture, isn't it, of the Christian church that the New Testament has. That we are livers, kidneys, eyebrows, all sorts of other bits and pieces. We are members of a body. I need you. You need me. My kidneys need my heart. Right? My kidneys need my glutamus maximus. Right? We, the whole thing, we need each other. We can be quite different. And it may well be that the kidney has spent, what, 68 years or earlier because it was working in my mother's womb, um, 60-something years, and it doesn't even know what it's doing. It couldn't write you a good essay on how it cleans the blood. It just does what it's doing as it just lives. And you may be like that. You may not be entirely sure what your gift is. It doesn't matter. Just love people right? and God will use you. He will, he's given us gifts. But the first thing he says is we are members one of another. So we don't go to church like I go to a petrol station to get petrol and I go to anyone I like. We belong to each other. There are no volunteers in this church. We use the word volunteer because there's no other good word. In the same way as my kidney does not volunteer to serve the body, it does what it's supposed to do. If it doesn't want to turn up, it needs leave of absence. 
Thankfully, God's over-engineered, so I can do without one. But we need each other. And God has made you to be for the... And you want to ask, what, what, where are you doing good to others? Because it's entirely possible to come to church and, and, you know, and not stay around. And, and even if we're here, not to actually seek to be loving and listening to people and finding people who seem to be new and without a friend. We just come and hang around and catch up with friends and sometimes sin at church. Gossiping, bitching, backstabbing, whatever, you know. But to come and love, to come and listen, to come and care for each other, to build one another up, to be healthy members of the body. Now, you may have known Christ for 20 years. You may have known this when you were first a Christian. You may have forgotten. You may have never known it. But we need each other. Uh, our culture says we don't. Our culture says you can kind of do Christianity without church. No, I don't think the Bible knows anything of that nonsense. We do need each other. We need to be, whether it's a house, church or somewhere, we need to be meeting with other Christian people. Well, I need to finish this, don't I? Because you've already had the money talk. In terms of restoration, you heard from Revelation 7. We are heading to a togetherness. We start in the garden together. It's all broken and nasty and fixed up. And we're heading off to a togetherness experience. Heaven is, some people prefer Jesus where he says, in my father's house are many rooms. That's what I want, buddy. Those extroverts can go to the big singing around the throne thing. Just give him my own room with a telly. Um, but by the way, we'll all be much nicer to be with then as well. But it is, it's from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people people who've come to Christ. It will be a togetherness thing at the end. So friends, when we go forward, where God has taken us to is to a wedding banquet. That's the picture Jesus uses. That's what lies ahead of us. A great round the throne party together, united in joy and perhaps even in service. When you go back far enough, we won't go down here. There'd be fun to do it though, wouldn't it? You go back as far as you can possibly go and what do you find? A loving community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Togetherness is at the very heart and root and source of everything. This is part of the exciting beauty of the Trinity. Love is not just an accidental thing we need because the way we've evolved. We are made for relationship. It's part of the expression of God that, that the root, the most solid reality in the universe is not physical stuff, it's not light. It's loving relationship. And this week to go on loving and supporting people like Matthew 26. So much good stuff here, but we'll have to skip it, eh? Matthew 26, Jesus needed his disciples, didn't he? When he was going up for the Gethsemane thing where he's going to ask the Father, really, do I have to go through this? He takes his three closest friends and says, stay here with me and pray. Now they don't help and they fall asleep. But Jesus, the perfect man, he, he needed the friendship. He longed for it at his most desperate time. And despite what Jean-Paul Sartre says, who says that hell is other people, hell is actually the complete absence of people. And you see it, don't you, with Jesus later on in Matthew, in Matthew 27, 46, where he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly alone, deserted and betrayed by friends. And as he takes our sin, our unforgiveness, our unlove, our selfishness, etc., he is himself cut off from the Father. Hell is not other people. In the end, hell is the complete absence 
of these wonderful gifts from God. So friends, that's what it is. Last thing, just a, a quick thing I learnt from a, a TED talk I was listening to the other day. Um, this lady was speaking and she said that in one of the tribal languages down in South Africa, the way they greet each other is with these words, sawabono. The great thing is I know none of you speak that language, so you can't say, no, that's not how you say it. She said it was sawabono, which means I see you. It's a lovely way to greet somebody, I see you. And that would be good for us after, just to make sure we see each other, right, and notice each other, and check each other out and care for each other. And the response is, Sakona, I am here. It's, it's kind of, I think that was a helpful, this is what it is to love each other, it's to see each other, to take each other seriously, and to be there for each other. This is what it is to be human, right? that we're made as communal creatures. It's not good for us to be alone. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you know each one of us here and you know what has hurt us and broken us and twisted us and we pray that you would help us to continue to recover as the work of your spirit on the inside and by the transforming of our mind through your word and through learning to love through being with each other. Lord, we do pray we'd be a, a people who are quick to say oops and sorry and I forgive you. Lord, we pray that we would honour the usness of what you have made in being human, that we would love others deeply and allow ourselves as time moves on to be known and to know that we would love as we've been loved. We pray this, Father, for the glory of your Son. Amen.